from the Gospel of Luke. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. Our passage for this morning is that, you know, little-known parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the stories that kind of undergirds our culture. I mean, we have, you know, Good Samaritan hospitals. We have Good Samaritan laws. You're familiar with that one, right? If somebody's hurt and you stop to help them in good faith, you can't be sued. And uh, I'd even be willing to bet that 90% of our country knows what a Good Samaritan is, if you were to call somebody that, even if only 10% know what a Samaritan is. Uh, don't quote me on those, by the way. That's entirely made up. But as familiar as we may be with this story, we've misunderstood it if we reduce the impossible ethic that Christ is calling us to, a costly love of our enemies, to the platitudinous, you know, be kind. It's much deeper than that, much richer and much more difficult. In fact, this parable that Jesus tells, that He calls us to, is to exhibit a radical self-sacrificial love even to our enemies, a charge that is not only difficult, but it's also one that we have no natural desire to do and very little natural reason for doing. Because as you'll see as we move through our text, you know, our, our hearts are deceitful above all things. We lie to ourselves about our goodness. We readily carve out exceptions of loving those that we disagree with or don't like or simply have little bearing on our lives. So as we dive into the text, I'm going to ask you to hold someone in mind, either real or, you know, an amalgamation of your least favorite traits, and think about that person. It was funny, as I was driving here today, I think the simplest way to do that is um, when you're driving on the road, do you ever see somebody who kind of plasters their whole life on bumper stickers, right? You know, there's no guesswork involved. Maybe that's you. Um, but, you know, there's no guesswork involved. You're like, oh, this is who you vote for. This is what you think about this issue. This is where you're, you know. Do you ever have some of those that you cheer on, but then you also have some of those that, you know, you wouldn't mind if they maybe clip the… I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But I want you to think about, I do, I want you to think about those particular people, the ones that, that kind of get under your skin without you even knowing them. So I've got three points for today as we go through our text on the Good Samaritan. The first point is the desire for self-justification… The other one is the temptation towards others' degradation. And then the third one is the good God. So let's dive in, the desire for self-justification. In our text for this morning, Jesus is approached by an expert in the law who tries to stump Jesus with a question. Bad idea, right? Just right off the bat. Jesus' part of the Godhead was responsible for inspiring its writing, so, you know, maybe don't question him on his own work. And so Jesus kind of flips the question on him, and He asks him, you know, what, what do you think it takes to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? What do you read? And the lawyer responds with a standard answer of the day. It's a summary of the… Uh, it's called the summary of the law. Did you, you've heard about that, right? I mean, we do say it every Sunday morning here, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Lord didn't make that up. If you, in fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first few are about loving who? God, right? And, th and then you start into loving your neighbor. So you combine those two and you get this command. 
You can find it in uh, Deuteronomy 6, and you can find the second half in Leviticus 19. You put them together. This was the standard answer of the day. How do you inherit eternal life? Love God perfectly from the moment of conception to the moment of your death, and love your neighbor as yourself actively in all times and all circumstances. By the way, that's still true. You want eternal life, love God perfectly for your entire existence, and, and love your neighbor perfectly for your entire existence. We were joking in adult forum, you know, if you come in in the morning here on Sunday, and when we turn and we say that to you, you know, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ saith, and you say, well, checked all the boxes, I mean, you can go home. You did it. But I don't think that's any of us. It's not you, and it's certainly not me. And so the lawyer, he's not satisfied with that answer. You know, one of the things lawyers are very good at is they're good at picking up fine print, aren't they? And so he reads the Word. He understands the impl implication perfectly. And so he has the reaction that every single one of us has when we come up against a law or a rule that is very difficult to follow or that we frankly don't like. He seeks to justify himself. And it's interesting, you know, this man might be a lawyer by profession, but every single one of us in this room has our own inner defense attorney, don't we? That rises up whenever we come across something that we're not a fan of or we do something that we know is wrong, that comes up and takes up the case, and our inner defense attorney works very hard to find the caveats and the loopholes and why we're excused from a particular moral behavior. Is that just me? Is that all of us? Yeah? And it often sounds something like this. I want you to think about, by the way, the justifications that you use, and I'll give you some of the ones that I thought about this week. Well, I can treat him like this because of the way that I was treated. It's a good justification. Or, you know, I can, I'm free to act like this because I'm either tired or not feeling well or stressed, so therefore I can be cranky. I can do this to avoid consequences that might be too severe, right? The consequences are too much, so maybe I can lie, hide, cheat, steal to try to avoid those consequences. That's a good justification. Or sometimes we don't even try that hard, do we? We just say, you know what? I should be allowed to do this, and so I will. That's it. Very simple. And it's funny, because as I was, as I was thinking through these examples this week, I realized that our attempts at self-justification don't get more sophisticated as we get older. I've got a three- and five-year-old, and I can tell you that they say the same things that I say. He did it first. I just don't like it. Well, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, we might get older and, and feel more sophisticated, but our inner defense attorney doesn't change. We try to justify ourselves in all sorts of ways. You know, for the lawyer in our text, his justification was he tried to limit the scope of the command to make it easier to follow. You know, if I just kind of limit what you're actually calling me to do, then maybe I can fit it, catch this, into what I am already doing so I don't have to change. Those are the best rules, right? The ones that we're already doing. No change required, no difficulty required. So what he says is, essentially, he says, so, you know, when the command says neighbor, do you mean like the people next door? Do you mean like my family? Do you mean like, you know, the people that I already love and care about? You know, like, let's, let's kind of let's rein this in a bit, because that's a pretty extensive command. Well, if you know anything about Jesus, he's not in the habit of watering down God's commands, is he? Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? In fact, Jesus expands God's commands. Jesus says, you heard it was said, you know, don't murder. 
How about this? If you're angry with somebody else, you've murdered them. That's an expansion. Jesus said, you've heard us said, don't commit adultery. How about if you lust after somebody in your heart? That's adultery. That's an expansion. And then Jesus also said, you know, if you only love those who love you, what good is that? Even the Pharisees do that. Instead, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is not in the habit of letting us off the hook. And we can try. We can try to create exceptions or limit his commands. Or we say, you know, did God really say that? Like the serpent in the garden, right? Did God really say that? But that's not the way, that's not the way we do it. God's laws stand. We're finding that they're woven into the very fabric of reality, and we were born accountable for all of them. So Jesus, rather than let him off the hook, he tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells him this parable that we just heard of a man who was robbed and broken and beaten on the side of the road, of a priest and Levite of his own people, by the way, who leave him to die and go on the other side, and of a hated Samaritan who stops and cares for the man. Which brings us to our second point, the temptation towards others' degradation. No one would have missed that Jesus put a Samaritan in the role of Savior. In fact, the way that the Greek sentence is constructed, Samaritan is at the front of the sentence, which means it's emphasized. Samaritan. And I'm not going to give you the whole history now, but suffice it to say that the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was not only complicated, but it was filled with animosity and loathing. You know, they used to actually be ten, they actually used to be the 12 tribes of Israel. They were basically a family, they were connected. And the ten tribes, for reasons of being conquered, they went off and they left the religion of God, essentially. They brought in all these other gods. It's called syncretism. They combined all these things. They left their faith, and they, you know, they just kind of intermarried with other things. Jews thought of them as half-breeds. And the two, these other two tribes, after they were conquered, they actually, their faith, instead of losing it, it got stronger. And so when they came back, there was this huge feudal infighting. The type of fighting, by the way, that only can happen in you know, families, right? Contentious divorces, um, you know, families who are hurt and broken, who have loved each other and are now going for the throat. You're familiar with this type of hatred on a different level? That's the type of animosity that they had towards each other. Now, this might be hard for us to understand because culturally we don't have any of those kind of divisions, right? No? We're fine? We've moved, moved past this? We've grown up? No, of course not. We, 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 live, we live in an increasingly cultural sense of us and them, don't we? Uh, to bring this home, I did some research this week to check our political temperature in this country, by the way, and I found a study, it was, it was three years old, it's 2019, from the Pew Research Center. And they, um, they keep track of partisan antipathy using something called a feeling thermometer. Have you heard of this? It's a thermometer, and across it you have, like, how do you feel towards somebody of the opposite political persuasion? It's like um, you have very warm you know, warm, neutral, cold, and then on the far end, very cold. Y'all follow me? So they call up and they do surveys to find out, you know, how are you feeling towards them? And uh, what they found out was in the last few years, the percentage of people feeling very cold went up 15% in both parties, an average of 15%. That's a huge jump, by the way. And for the first time, since, I think since it's been measured, there's now the majority of people of each party feel very cold toward members of the other party. 
Another number to throw out there. 73% of people of any particular political persuasion not only believe that the other party's values and beliefs are different, but they can't even agree on basic truths. It's not a good sign. It doesn't bode well for us as a nation, but it also reflects poorly on us in Christians. And here's what I mean. Yes, it's fair to believe that the values espied, that some, the values espoused by, espoused by a particular political party best reflect Christian values and would do the world of good if implemented, but that's besides this particular point, which is how we feel about individuals who espouse those beliefs, the individuals that we disagree with. I mean, imagine, for example, that we're all worshiping together as Christians, brothers and sisters, by the way, in Christ. Then we go to coffee hour, we have a wonderful hour and a half long conversation with somebody. We have so much in common. We realize we really need to be friends. And then by the end of the cocktail party, one person says, oh yeah, by the way, this is my political party affiliation. It's the opposite of yours. What's your heart do at that point? Do you have the right to snub that person, do you think? To withhold love from them? It's tough. And that's just what politics, by the way, that's just one category. That's only one way that we draw circles around who is in and who's out. Think about all the different ways that we do that, from trivial things like music or sports teams or whatever else. It's almost as though we operate with kind of this flow chart to determine a person's value. Are you all familiar with flow charts, decision-making trees as you go down? You've got like person up here and person of value at the bottom. And so you kind of start off and you're like, all right, are you enjoyable to be around? Yes or no? No? you're out. Yes, right? Then you get to like, do we have interests in common? Yes or no? No? Well, yeah. But now you're getting a little closer to being a person of value to me. Do you have the same beliefs about X, Y, or Z? Yes? All right, you made it. What happens to all the people that drop off along the way? I mean, that's, that's you know, maybe that's a fine way to determine friendships, but determine whether somebody has value or worth? That's above our pay grade. You know, it's not ours, and, and Scripture's clear about this, it's not ours to determine a person's worth. We're no heroes or saviors ourselves, are we? None of us rides high enough in the saddle to look down on anyone else. Which brings us to our third and final point, the good God. I want you to notice something about this parable. Jesus doesn't directly answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, does he? Instead, he answers the question that the lawyer should have asked, the one that he would have asked if he was actually seeking to obey God's commandment rather than avoid it. The question that Jesus primarily answered is not, who is my neighbor, but how should I love my neighbor? The difference between these two questions is a heart condition. One comes from the heart that asks, Lord, what is the minimum necessary that I have to do? And the other heart is, Lord, how can I fulfill what you have asked me to do to the fullest? One, heart, one heart's operating from a deficit. It's dismissive of God and withholds love from others. The other is filled to overflowing and is able to pour the love that has been received from God out into others. One operates empty, one operates full. One of these hearts is capable, and only one of these hearts, by the way, is capable of fulfilling even a fraction of what God is asking us to do for our neighbor. So how do you become the second? Do you just will yourself to do better? Of course not. 
That was the point of the story. Jesus, Jesus would have placed the lawyer in the saddle of the donkey as a hero, as an exemplar. Instead, the lawyer is the one who, like us, is lying, beaten, and broken on the road. And as for the identity of who this good Samaritan is, who can ride high in the saddle, well, look at what the good Samaritan does. He goes to where the man is. He binds his wounds. He anoints him with oil. He fortifies him with wine. He brings him to a place where he can be cared for. He pays his debts, and he promises to return. Don't miss that. Let this be a reminder to us of who we are in the story and who God is to us. We are those who have been beaten and broken. We are those who have been lying on the side of the road in a ditch, and God is the one who left his place and came down to where we were to anoint us with oil and baptism, to infuse us with his grace and communion, to bring us into this place, the church, for healing, to pay the debt of our sins, and who has promised to come back for us. And when you know who you are in the story, what you realize is that you don't have the right to evaluate others by any other measure than what Christ has given us to use. That we have no right to judge others of less worth than Christ himself has bestowed on us. And out of the abundance of God's love for us, we are to share that act of love with others, not out of duty, but out of joy in participating in God's work. Because you, can have, you have no idea the impact that you have on others if you just extend the love of God to them. I'm going to finish with this. This is a true story that happened a couple weeks ago. Um, I've got two uh, neighbors on our road, um, one of which is uh, a strong Christian, and we have great conversations. We've become good friends. And the other one, um, he, would, he would call himself a Christian, um, but he doesn't, he doesn't believe in the Trinity. He believes that we should still obey all the Old Testament laws. Um, he's actually very restrictive to members of his household to the point of causing concern and um, kind of keeps to himself. And uh, we, uh, two weeks ago, their kids were interacting, and um, the neighbor who keeps to himself's daughter said well, to the other son, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not going to be saved. Like very fundamental Pentecostal sort of belief, like you're not a Christian if you can't speak in tongues. And, and you know, Lord, Lord bless this boy, uh, he knows his Bible upside down, he's nine. And, um, and he just quotes a lot of Scripture at her and says, you're wrong, and then she goes off upset, right? So we have a little rift in the community, and you know what happens. Um, but what was interesting is um, the dad of the little girl who went away crying, you know, came out to confront the neighbor about, you know, what are you teaching my daughter? And, you know, don't teach her things that we aren't taught in our church. And to my friend's credit, he went out there to meet him in the middle of the street, I think it was two weeks ago, with a humble heart, with a caring nature, with compassion, not defensive, not reactive. And over the course of their conversation, the man who was restrictive said, you know, I'm actually kind of a new Christian. I'm just kind of learning the stuff as I go. Would you, would you like to study the Bible with me and bring me along and teach me some of the things that you've been talking about? 
Now, how cool is that? In fact, I've talked to my buddy about it the other day. I'm going to try to elbow my way into this Bible study because I think this is just the greatest thing. So it just goes to show when Christ calls us to this active love of our neighbor, of this self-sacrificial, giving, non-defensive, non-reactive posture to the individuals that God puts in our path, He can do great things through us. And the only way that we can get in that posture, in that position, is if we first realize who we are and what God has done for us first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know how easy it is for us to stay in our tribes, to dismiss others as less than or unworthy. But God, you have called us to a high ethic, to difficult living. We thank you that you have given the example for us to follow in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through him we are also strengthened to live out the call that you have commanded of us. I pray that we would remember, even as we gather here this morning, that you have bestowed worth and value on those who otherwise would not have it, and you give us the grace to extend that to others. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.